Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Listening, hear me. I may not pass this way again. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with writer and filmmaker Mark Bauscher. You can learn more about Mark and his work via Twitter. His handle is at Mark Bauscher Film. You can find out more about me and the projects I'm working on, including my music and acting endeavours, at robertlaymusic.co.uk and on social media as Robert Lane Music. It would be fantastic if you could rate, review and subscribe to the podcast, as doing that helps more people to discover it in the future. It's also very useful when I'm talking to potential new guests, as it shows that people are listening. Thank you. Hi, Mark. How are you? Very nice to meet you, Rob. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. It's a, a nice sunny day and here, uh, sitting in the dark with the blinds closed to try and help the, <laughs> the sound. So, yeah, not bad. Thank you. That's it. Us creative people locked away when everyone else is enjoying the sunshine, but never mind. <laughs> and whereabouts are you? Bristol, I believe. Is that home? Yeah, um, only recently moved to um, Bristol. I think um, wanted somewhere that has um plenty of city life and mm. uh, music and film and arts and theatre and stuff like that and be able to get out the countryside a bit more easily than London which is where I lived for 15 years ah, I okay. think after uni okay cool so uh, yeah that's interesting then is that a, a creative choice then to be somewhere near nature and stuff does that help with that side of life or was it was it other stuff <laughs> Um, it, it was various. Um, it was various things. Um, basically, my girlfriend can work anywhere, and I tend to travel a lot if I'm filming or if I'm writing or editing or anything. That can kind of happen anywhere. So yeah, and we we wanted somewhere with a bit more space in in London. It's difficult to have some proper outside space, so we decided Bristol was not too far away and if we've got if I've got work in London and I've got friends you know it is possible to get to London and back in the day and then we can yeah explore the countryside explore the countryside I spent um yesterday because the sun was actually good enough um been working on a, a project and trying to get the plot together for it and actually walking and being outside of the house helps and yeah the plot and ideas come to you accidentally if you walk on your own um, for a long amount of time. That that really genuinely helps. And I couldn't, in London, I could cycle to parks and things mm. like that, but you couldn't get properly out into the countryside. Mm. So, yeah, but it, it's part of, yeah, having space but not saying goodbye to the city either. So, yeah. And then you mentioned being able to get back into London quite easily. Has there been any effect work-wise with not being in London has that not been an issue not really because um I think with my work it it tends to be that uh, because I work both as a filmmaker um and a writer if I'm writing or if I'm filming or a lot of the time I'm actually producing though I never really credit myself for it which is a lot of trying to find a location or trying to find cast and crew and or even all the budgeting side of things, and that can happen anywhere, then the filming locations, very often they're not even in London um, anyway. So the, the last couple of location shoots, I think, um, one was on a beach in Essex um, for a documentary on the origins of warfare in October, and it was weirdly a beautiful sunny day. Um <laughs> And then I think I did something in Oxford at the Ashmolean Museum again for a history documentary. And then before that, I'd, actually, I went back to Essex to film in a secret nuclear bunker that's obviously not very secret anymore. Um, yeah, so it tends to be that for filming, we move about anywhere. And there's stuff we're looking at that might be um, in in France as well. So I mm. found with, with work, it, it, tends to, it tends to move around. So I don't think it's really restricted anything good and you'd mentioned the getting out in in nature to sort of spark creativity what's a perfect writing day for you you keeping office hours to do that is there a particular location that works really well or is it quite quite random 
It is quite it is quite random. Um I'm still trying to work out what a perfect writing day for me is. And there there are different uh, there are different parts of this. So at at the moment, um like I said, I'm between finishing one documentary and then before I start to work on the next one, I'm actually trying to get into what is my real specialism, which is, you know, writing and directing fiction. Mm. And I I was like, okay, I need real space to, to work out the the plot. Basically, I was going to enter a, a competition that Netflix were having. I had a conversation with a producer because you needed to have a producer on board to do it. And they were like, you've left it a bit too late, really. I was like, I know, but I kind of think you know it's good to have a competition to get yourselves going and then Mm. I was like oh god I think I'm going to set myself a a deadline to try and get a draft done pretty quickly so at the moment I'm in the middle of trying to work out what that perfect day is Mm -hmm. and I have a feeling that that all the the thinky stuff that that day one I think the perfect day is to is to leave the house and and get away from people walk down a country lane and and um stuff you know I think it I often have this conversation um with my girlfriend we're, we're good at working out when we need space and things and when we want to have a chat with each other between yeah um meetings and offload and and chat and stuff but there are some times when you're in the middle of something and somebody comes in and talks to you it, it's like you've dived right to the bottom of the ocean somebody has pulled you right back up and you got the bends and I genuinely feel dizzy if I'm halfway through working out plot points so I think at the beginning of the process getting out because yesterday I was walking and I wasn't physically writing things but Mm. I would type things you know I would structure scenes I was like okay this scene this film is going to be based around these six central scenes and working out what they are and in what order and so I started by writing down character names and working out who they are. So that perfect writing day was getting out and about. And I think it will build up to actually being inside, whether it's at home or whether it's in a cafe or something. And sometimes a cafe is perfect because you have a good amount of noise, but it's a different environment. Um, and then other days you're like, actually, I, I need to be, I need the quiet and I need the familiar and I don't need to be worried about my laptop when I go to the loo or something and yes. um, like that. I don't know what other people do. I take my laptop to the loo with me. It's uh, you know, it's quite a fancy one that I'm, you know, can't <laughs> for editing and, you know, but yeah, so I, I think there are different phases for it. The, the idea phase, I think you've got to get out and I'm going to try getting out into to nature and actually, you know, have some idea about stopping under trees and writing with your laptop. But then, you know, the problem with that is you're like, oh, I need the loo. Ashley mm. needs some water. Maybe I need to be inside now. And then you're trying to, if it's sunny, you know, seeing your laptop screen in the sun is always a, a difficult kind of thing so I think this sort of for me it's about variety Mm. and knowing what you need on that day if you get them to know that this is a good day to leave the house this Mm. is a good day to to stay and actually do the churn because you you get to a point where you know the the plot is so embedded in your head that you you know all the work is done I think in your head when you're writing and that's why when you're walking and not typing the work is being done and then when I sit and type, you know, I, I will type as fast as my fingers can catch up um, with my brain. I do all the formatting and the boring stuff later. So, yeah. yeah. And this screenplay then, is this a brand new idea or is it an idea that's been sort of there for a while and percolating away? Um, I think it's been slightly percolating away. Like I did have a point last year where I, I had I've several sort of dream screenplays and then I look at the practicalities of actually with the experience I've got now yeah. over sort of eight years or eight and a half, I think, of being a freelancer. I'm right at the point now where I could do that and I feel like actually I am. But then I've, I've sort of like, actually, I think I need one that's mainly based around one location mm. and but not completely. So there are a few days where you do a few other locations that gives you visual variety and stuff but still is 
you know, it's designed for a lower budget. So it's a, it's a pretty new idea. And essentially I went to look at the, the Netflix breakthrough project, which was a, a low budget um, film, but it was genre and all the, the sort of dream projects I had in my idea were not really genre. And I was like, that idea I had last year that was kind of a murder mystery, but kind of something much darker and more satirical. Um, I was like, yeah, maybe that will be the thing. Maybe that will be the thing to work on. So yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty new idea. And that's why I've needed more space. You know, a couple of the other ideas have been, in various forms in my head for the last decade or so. Mm. So, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? The writers I speak to tend to have a few different um, projects that are kind of at various stages of of life, but then something, as you mentioned, like the Netflix competition comes up and therefore one just kind of takes a bit of a precedent because it suits that project. Um, it's, It's interesting how that sort of works. And then with this Netflix competition, even if that doesn't end up, happening if you have created something and that was the impetus to do it there's something very cool in that as well isn't there because it could be that that project ends up being something else but you wouldn't be getting to the stage of finishing it were it not be thinking about this competition yeah well there's there's always the phase that you've got so many ideas and and things like that I I think most creative people might will probably be the same as as me I've I've got written in I found written in a notebook somewhere it's just like you know whenever I die there will be like a hundred projects that I will will not have had a chance to 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 finish do you have then like you know are they like your children I couldn't possibly pick a favorite or have you got that's the one that really if there was no nothing else preventing me that's the one that I would be doing now what you know how does that work oh I really wish at some point I think I had a a rant about that are they like your your <laughs> children and I find that idea like obviously there's some truth in it because you you love them all for for different reasons but it's also hilarious because <laughs> if your children were creative projects that would just be awful because there are some because there are some of those um children that you just discard <laughs> or some that you forget about but if for they can't, years and then like I'd completely forgotten about. Yeah, that if they one. can't get you uh, get something for you, so it's more like a Victorian parent, isn't it? If they can't yeah. work down the mine or yeah. or marry the right person, then oh, we forget about them. But they won't inherit. I, yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the only thing I can think of is like if if your creative projects are like children, they're like Boris Johnson's children <laughs> because there are, there are some on every writer's list that they're like, I want to deny that I had that kid at all. Is that my kid? I don't know. I've got too many of them. I can't keep count. It's, it's, um, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the thing is that we, you know, writers thrive on having lots of things. The, the, the thing is that we have lots of um, stuff and, you know, we like, I think sometimes we like format and, and things like that, you know, mm. lots of writers want to be that, you know, I think there's a lot more respect for um, fan fiction stuff, whereas people would have been much more dismissive of it. And I, mm. I'm sort of, I guess I, I'm always like, I want to think of that new idea that's, that's fresh and something different. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, I would absolutely like to write for, for this show or, or that show. I mean, I, I think I've been, always very vocal about the fact that I, I want to work for Doctor Who and or Big Finish ever who wouldn't want to write for that but even that expresses the kind of variety I like because Doctor Who's the sort of thing where you go you can go anywhere in the universe you can make a planet up you can go to a time period there's even something amazing some of the best Doctor Who stuff comes from that contemporary um you know from actually setting things mm-hmm. um contemporary and that that's a good expression of my kind of idea of of writing because I just like the idea of doing something that I haven't done before. And yeah. you know, I'm somebody who has I've um, written and had a, a fantasy book published, um, and I have several quite, and that's a YA, so it's a kids book. But then I'm, the films I come up with tend to be fairly grown up and usually quite contemporary and 
um, have some mixture of humour. You know, I, I worked a while ago on a, on a sitcom pilot. So all that is very different to kids' fantasy. And at the same time, in many ways, it's not. Um, but then most of my what I do for a living at the moment is I make history documentaries. And I like the idea that as creative people, we we are not one thing. I, I spent mm. quite some time doing work um, for a publisher's called Unbound. And in about four years, I made about 180 videos for their author. So this was all um, interviewing an author and then, you know, trying to, in 90 seconds, explain what their book is to help with part of the crowdfunding campaign. Mm. And the thing I'd found from, you know, speaking to lots of those authors, some are very proud that I am a fantasy author or I write this kind of, or I like to think that I am a literary, uh, an author of literary fiction. But I would say the majority either said or I detected that they didn't like the idea of a category. As soon as you put a category on it, it felt like, you were playing it down or it was a restriction because there's so much more because I I realised that since I published a a fantasy book that people keep buying me fantasy books and then I was like, I realise I don't actually read a lot of fantasy. Um, And when I broke down all the books that had influenced it, I mean, a lot of them were actually travel books, you know, non-fiction books or just even Attenborough documentaries mm. or action films. Um, you know, I, I see uh, The Caves of Androzani, the Doctor Who story, influencing a lot of things. You know, so I I don't always, you know, that idea of a, a category. I think with writers, we always want to be doing something that is different from the last thing. And that can even be that if your thing is that you're writing a a a series of of pretty, um, you know, detective books. Even if you're always doing the same genre with the same characters, even then you're like, I want to do something I've not done with this character before. I don't actually just want to be churning out the same stuff or being thought I'm churning out the same stuff. I I think as writers, we, you know, it the, the pain comes with with writers and creative people from. That idea can go in any way and you can change anything. This is why, again, they're not like children because you can change them anytime in any way and rename them. And sometimes you look back at the book and you're like, I can't even remember what happens in that Mm. um, chapter. What happened to that person? Did I end up sticking with that name or or doing that? So I I think, and there's that weird point that when you see something in print and it's fine, you're like, I, I can't, you know, I find myself almost tapping the page of something I've written mm. that's printed because you're like, I can't change it now. Mm. And that's, that's, that's strange. Mm. So yeah, as, as writers, I don't think we necessarily like being categorized and we, we, we just like the idea of something different and something not being restricted by this is this kind of genre for this sort of age group. There's a couple of things to pick up from that. First of all, um, I mean, try not to do 20 minutes of Doctor Who chat now, but the thing that always kind of appealed to me about Doctor Who, as you say, is you can be anywhere you can think. So, But also the thing is it can be really, really big. So we can move planets and the universe is going to end. Or it could mm. be something's going on in Croydon. And that's that's the episode, and it's just two or three people involved in that story. And there's something about that you're going between being massive stories to being very small parochial stories that I always find quite enjoyable. Just an observation. Um, and then yeah. this this thing with um, trying different things that's very interesting. So it's something that I have found. I've imagined it's a problem and I'm not sure if it is really. So I, I'm a musician, I write songs and play gigs, but I'm also an actor and I'm interested in being involved in film and theatre. And at one point in my life, I was trying desperately to keep all these things separate as if people, you know, the Alan Partridge business card after dinner mm-hmm. speaker used car in It's like, well, if you're doing all of these things, you're probably not that good at any one of them, really, kind of jack of all trades. And as time has gone on, I've sort of thought, well, fuck it, I'm interested in all of them, so I'll do them all. But they, they're not that different. I spoke to David Quantic on this, actually, and I kind of tried to ask this question, and he's like, yeah, but he says, when you write different genres and stuff, is there a, a difficulty in convincing people you can do that? And he says, well, yeah, but it's not like you're going from being a 
brain surgeon to being a fighter jet pilot. You know, it's still still yeah. writing. And I think they all kind of inform each other, don't they? But I wonder in the different things that you've done, as you're moving into something new, is there an element of how do I convince people I can also do this? Or is it has it not been an issue? Oh yeah, I mean I I think part of the the reason why I'm I'm trying to move towards um doing fiction is that I've spent 2 years uh making documentaries and I I really I really love those. I really love doing the interviews. I love exploring and, and learning mm. um you know so much more and it's you know and they've you know this is all for um, a client history hit and they have they've given me a hell of a lot of creative freedom and they have also allowed me to to technically do stuff that is you know it's still it's still low budget really but it's still an, an expansion where I've been most of my freelance life have been doing corporate promos mm. um and things like that but a lot of it based on interviews which which definitely goes in you know the, the heart of you know a lot of the screen time in a documentary is um you know interviews with a you know a, a narrator or um you know piecing that sort of stuff together um so i think the reason i'm trying to make that change is that i don't just want to be thought of as a documentary person I would really like to be doing documentaries as well. You know, I think my ideal situation would be that I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't stop making um, documentaries for History Hit or other people um, because there's, I did pictures for them um, recently and I was like, oh, I really want to do that film and I really want to do that film. Um, but I think that the thing that has helped inform it. And it was good that when I sent some examples of my work to the producers and that they basically said, it's too late for us to, to get involved in this, but actually we're very interested in the idea and, and you, and they could see that I had had, that I could produce material that was, you know, I'm making 45 minute long documentaries at the moment. And I produce, you know, I, produce, direct, write and edit those. And there's not many other people involved. You know, technically mm. there's a DOP and ev everything else is me, um, unless we do something like animation or, or something. But I think it was good for the, those producers to see that I had, you know, was technically able to, to put something that size and that length together and for it to work. So I think that helped, but maybe that was that was a bit of open-mindedness from them. I think mm. I'm always told that it, it's the idea more than anything. Um, but I did, I did also combine this with, I had um, shot some material for a sitcom um, pilot called It's All Lies, um, which I'm still trying to do something with. But again, time has been against me because I want to get all the, the scripts completed. And again, like the competition, you need a drive or, or something. Yeah like that so i i i think i have a concern that just doing documentaries um could hold me back and i just get pigeonholed with that which is why i'm keen to push towards doing fictional stuff um because i don't know if you know if i end up if these producers are not eventually um interested in it will other people be able to make that same leap of faith you know i went freelance after i'd made three short films um that had all won um best short films and i was like okay this is what i always wanted to do and those are all fiction they were all written by me and they were all you know it's all with actors you know it's proper fiction there's nothing documentary about them so that's where i've always been heading but those films now i don't show when going for a you know when i'm applying for something because they were shot on zero budget they're not technically um good enough one of them the watchers i think still works quite well and came out about the same time as black mirror and i'm i still think that works even though it's very you know i think even at the time i felt that this was going to look slightly studenty but hopefully would you know that, that the people will get the plot and stuff like that so yeah I, I think there's that continual worry that if you're sticking to one thing you will just be pigeonholed for it and that's why I'm trying to push to do other things but I you know I, I am also 
aware that it's you are very lucky and I think you could say very privileged sometimes to be able to to do that sort of thing or, or for, to approach people and then they they say yes to mm. something um uh like that and I they try and be very aware about that I feel like a lot of doors have been slammed in my face but maybe it's not as many as I I think um so yeah I I am trying to push towards doing fiction I just need to have that determination because I don't want just doing documentaries to hold me back and if I was lucky if in ideal world I'd I'd still be able to to make Mm. those as as well but there comes the thing that you know in um, what eight and a half years of being freelancer there's not been a, a single month where I have not worried that I would be able to pay the bills for the next month you know and even when things are more settled so that there is always balancing that and balancing the pushing the things that you you want to do so I I try and use the gaps and I do think that it coinciding with the sun coming out and good weather helps because that always that always really really helps I think I do have like the the seasonal defective Mm -hmm. uh, affected disorder which I think we all probably naturally do somewhere or another but you know some people generally like autumn and winter and and stuff like that but um I I think that helps and it's timing and I'm trying to to jump on that so Mm -hmm. yeah we shall see great so yeah if you could you've done it a bit already but outline for us that um that eight years and that process of going freelance then you and how important then those three I think you said three films that you did for yourself three shorts in general for creative people how important is doing your own work and showing people what you're capable of in order to get a a gig that somebody else is funding I think it's I think it's unbelievably important I mean there's a weird thing that I, I used to work um in film marketing and years after leaving i um i had a chat with with somebody who'd started i think a year after me and now was sort of working in the sort of business analyst sort of side and mm. i was saying like i've done a few short films and then i'm gonna do um you know i think i'm gonna do another one because i don't think they're good enough quality and he just said to me there's no value in short films whatsoever mm. He said that, you know, he said there's no, he, his, from, as far as he was concerned, there was no value. I think, I think he felt more financially or what they would do. And I, I really um, still feel angry about that opinion, not about him at all, but just about that opinion, because I think it is rubbish. And there are, <laughs> and I, I don't know, maybe he was still fairly new at the time, but then you have countless examples of people um is it damon chazelle i can't remember if his name who did um whiplash and that was a short oh um and it it very often happens like you know if you don't have something to show people yeah how do they know you can do it and if you do something that you really want to do you know i think that people really 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 get that you know i was Mm. set a challenge once to make a a a film called only one person will like this film (laughs) Uh, well that's what i called it and it was about um the the challenge was make um make a short film about a filmmaker who takes revenge on every festival that has turned them down (laughs) and i tried to turn that around into something kind of sweet and how it becomes emotionally sort of manipulative and how she gets her uh, her film screened uh, you know, th- using psychology rather than I think people were expecting me to, to, you know, for it to involve a helicopter gunship or something like that. Um, and people really responded mm. to that film because it was about, you know, she keeps making these weird films and this festival, this same person keeps turning her down. And in the end, she researches the guy because he accidentally leaves his name on a, on a, on like a, a an email return, like out of anger, he forgets to to send it from the, you know, the 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 sort of generic um, account, mm. and she researches him, makes a film he likes, and then says, you know, and and it's basically his life told artistically, so he loves it, and then you know it, it ends up being screened, but it actually ultimately turned the final version turns into a film that's that's one of hers, and I people really responded to that. Um, 
film and I, it really you know it makes you realize that you, you think oh but it's not technically very good it was shot for nothing oh I think it's a bit too long and this and that but I think at the end of the day people will respond to, to you making something you wanted to do so and also you will end up you know going to do those sort of projects like a lot of people go to it if they have made a shorter version of it mm. first I think that's quite a good route censor by Prana Bailey Bond that came out um last year she did a short film called Nasty which was about video nasties and you know and years later between she ended up making a, a feature film. so she clearly she'd been wanting to make that for a long time and I think that is how you start um, so I, I see a tremendous value in, in short films and doing the film, not that you think will sell as a short film, but the film you want to do. Because I think trying to work out what people will, what they will like and whatever, you know, you, your first film, I suppose, typically isn't going to be that film that, you know, just becomes a big thing. Maybe it will become some sort of viral hit, but that would just be time and place and themes and things like that. You can't predict it. So you might as well go out there and make the best film you can, you know. And it doesn't also, even it's hard at the time, it doesn't matter if that first film doesn't do very well because you're like, I learned from it and people responded to some things and I'm, you know, you're not going to stop. And um, I should probably go back and answer your question on the eight years. Um, so... Um, I kind of had this trajectory that I was, um, um, I'm not trying to do David Copperfield and do my entire life, but there's a couple <laughs> of things I'll try and very quickly uh, mention. So um, um, as a kid, I was um, known for being, you know, I was clearly quite smart, but I was failing at everything. And I ended mm. up, because I was also quite clumsy and I had a short mm. attention span, had a diagnosis when I was 10 that I was dyspraxic. And, it's, and it sort of coincided with, a year after that I changed school and, and that actually is a weird sort of thing that gave me um a lot of confidence knowing that you weren't just um you know some some weird kid who who was clumsy and and you know was struggling to to finish stuff um because that's what attention span can do to you when you're um, dyspraxic and it's why I probably am a nightmare to edit because all my stuff is very tangential and I'm very aware of that um but um but the thing is that it's something that I realized I wasn't going to be good at sports and, and things like that so I ended up really embracing drama and, and theatre and those were the things um you know when people talk about all oh, school trips aren't mm. very useful like school trips mm. to theatre were the things that absolutely made my life and so theatre and that camaraderie which I still miss and that's the thing I'm aiming to get back to I, I have never been happier than when I was in a play at school and on stage but it's just the, the time in between with people so that theatre at school was the defining thing of my life sure and that was like I want to do that but actually I was very precise I liked the idea of setting something in stone and the film worked for me you know more and I'm always going to have this undying love for theatre and maybe in some twisted way I love it more than film but you know I just have some obsession with making film myself so I kind of when I went to uni and I, I studied film I was always trying to, to get back to that moment and then I, you know I did jobs on set as runners and I was just like struggling to get you know any you know, getting paid for work in film when you're straight out of uni is tough. So mm. I ended up, on my grandpa's advice, going to the library and photocopying um, the phone book and calling every film company in London until one uh. gave me a job. Like the internet existed, but was not quite as easy to find your way around. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I called them until um, one gave me two weeks and um, covering another runner who was um, off how many um, and in the end they gave me a full-time job sorry just jump in how many phone calls was that just out of interest right about um i don't know but i went through it alphabetically hmm. and i got to r which was red bus so that's quite and a few red probably bus, yeah red bus um 
gave me a job as a runner. They then got bought out by Lionsgate in the US and became Lionsgate in the UK. So it's a shame because I would have got to L sooner. And this only happened like a week after. <laughs> so yeah, I, I ended up like another a job for a runner came up like a week after I was leaving. So I got a week off mm. and then I got a full-time job. Then they they just kept expanding because they were Lionsgate and I got the junior marketing assistant job. So I, I basically started doing office jobs in film. Right. Um, and I did that for the three different companies. So I was doing completely different things. It was great. I got to go to film premieres and, and things, you know, like that when you're really new in the industry. And it was, yeah, it felt amazing. And, you know, you'd often meet famous people. I remember getting in the lift with Richard E. Grant just in the office once and just not knowing what to say to him and things like that. Um, and yeah, so I, I did that, but then I was still like, but I want to be making film. I want to be making film. And so I started making films, just, 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 just no budget things, sort of ideas that I had and kept sending them to festivals and yeah, three of them won, not massive festivals, but mm. two in the UK and one in the US. I ended up going to LA for for one of them, the, the watches that I was talking about earlier when that won an award. Um, and then I was like, I really need to start doing this properly because that's that's what I really want to do. So mm. um, I, in the end, I was made redundant for a job. Um, and what I did was I got a, I was like, I'm going to get a job I don't care about because it won't be distracting. So I worked in a bakery for a supermarket um, and I did that three days a week. And that was also, some of that was like 4am start. So I had time in the day if I wanted mm. to do other stuff. And then I just started working up sort of showreel stuff. I knew the, the London Bubble Theatre Company, who I'd been part of, they I think they they were the first people to hire me. I did some very low budget kind of filming for them. Even with the, I didn't even have a camera. They had a camera. And I was like, well, if we give you the camera, can you make the film? And I, so I just kept doing it. And I kept, I kept approaching people and I kept applying for jobs through websites and getting more and more material. At some point I read a book called The Idle Traveller, which which links to what I do now. It's um it, it sort of tells you about that getting out into nature, mm. actually to getting into any new space stimulates your brain in a different way. Because if you just walk through your house or even do your commute to work, these are all familiar things. Every time you're in a new territory, your brain is engaged in a different way. So it is literally best you and it's why we were all so lethargic and detached and 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 apathetic during lockdown um, is just because we didn't have any of that stimulus, the, the physical stimulus of moving and going places, but new things. So I, I really loved this book. It was about slow travel and not when you travel, don't just, you know, see the tourist sites, just hang around and, and see mm. the place. And I, I love this book so much. I realized that the guy who wrote it, Dan Kieran um, was one of, was he was somebody who ran a, a publishers called Unbound, and I ended up um, just emailing him. I didn't reply, and then I sent another one. I think on LinkedIn, and I did get a reply. They invited me for a meeting, and I, I basically showed them the the, the scraps of work that I had done, and I ended up working for them um, uh, for four years with other sort of clients. I was sometimes recommended. I worked for charities and things. So, all the time I was trying different things was like, let's try something with a, the drone. And then I got hmm. used to doing interviews and was like, can we do scripted scenes for corporate clients with actors? So all the time you are, you know, trying more and more stuff and the, and the more work you do, the more you are recommended, but the, it's difficult because there are times when I felt at some point, I don't know if it was a coincidence or just one of those things post-Brexit, it felt like work had slowed down um, slightly. And at that point, um, I ended up getting a part-time job uh, working in a shop. And I tell more people about this publicly because I think it's, some people feel there's a lot of shame, although those silly articles where like, someone says, oh, so-and-so used to be EastEnders is now working in a chippy. And it's like, we're like, that's just, that's just normal. For, for creative people and I think it's good to talk about that and say that 
every now and then you need to do something like that. And actually, the, it's better to do something sometimes that is a bit disposable and you don't like. It's uncreative. It's actually good for your brain and actually physical stuff, you know, is good for your brain. I'm sorry to interrupt the conversation at this point, but I wondered if I could ask you if you might possibly consider subscribing to the podcast, rating it and writing a review on your favourite podcast provider. Doing these wonderful things encourages the all-powerful algorithms to push the podcast to new people. It's also helpful when I'm talking to potential future guests, as it shows that people are listening. Thank you. But there's another side to that as well, isn't there? That if you're writing or any sort of creative, you actually need to have seen and do a bit of life. And of course, everybody does. But if your life is writing or making films or making music or whatever, you're missing out on a lot of life that you could talk about, which you might get from working in a chippy or a bakery or in a factory or whatever. Just the people that you'll meet and just what that feels like is going to inform your work and might make it more interesting. Yeah, it's very true. And it's, um, you know, I recently um, I sent to a BBC Open Call, they had a, um, um, you know, an open script competition. And I put lots of that bakery experience. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong in, you know, plagiarising your own life because oh, yeah. it's the stuff. Um, it's the stuff you know and you understand. You know, there's there's a lot of talk now on sort of, you know, when writers appropriate other people's experiences and and the, the bad things that they can do when they sort of how they represent um, different peoples and things like that. And it, it's a very thorny subject because as a writer, you know, to some degree you need to, um, you know, um, you need to have the whole universe at your command and do what the hell you want. But also you need to have that responsibility of saying, actually, maybe it's not good if I do this or that and I'm, I think there's a good COVID parallel of like you know you could go and do what the hell you want there's no set rules but there are also consequences for people that you may never see or meet if you don't be careful so I think there's being aware of that but when I'm I'm worried like oh should I just use that experience where I worked in a supermarket bakery I'm like yeah I should because the more I write that I can add detail that I understand that and you know yeah, we've all lived a long time, longer than we think sometimes, and there's plenty of experiences for you to use. And if you, and I still find within that not really repeating yourself. Sometimes I'm like, oh, is that a bit similar to that and mm. that? And then I look at pretty much every writer you know, and you can you can see some things copied. It's it's about how lazy you 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 get with that. So um, yeah, yeah, um, it's good. Um, I feel like in terms of the, the explaining those eight years, I probably have summarised a, a lot of it because I think the only thing that sort of has happened after doing lots of sort of corporate promos and things like that, and like I said, with each one, you're trying to do something uh, different and you're trying to push things technically and get bigger clients or or whatever. The, the, the sort of only other thing was... You know, I'd spent so much time working on films and particularly those Unbound promos. Again, they gave me a lot of creative freedom and I would mm. go further than I would. They wanted just probably just somebody sitting down in a chair sometimes having a chat, but I would go and film them out in the countryside or or something like that and make the films very visual. So when my brother, who's a history teacher, said, oh, there's History Hit, this new streaming service that does history documentaries and they're looking for filmmakers, I had lots of you know, 90 second to two minute versions of like, I could do this sort of thing, but a whole documentary. And they, I think, took took a risk on one film and were, uh, were very pleased with it. I, mm. I did a film um, um, after, that's a Bristol connection, um, after the whole Edward Colston statue situation, yeah. I did a documentary on what Germany did with their, statues and what happened to their whole memorial culture after the second world war because they weren't putting up statues to um you know heroes of the second world war in germany but they were starting to remember victims and mm. and i was very pleased with that because it tells you know it's one of those uh, this could be a very boring documentary and was the more you looked into it um the more fascinating stories you 
you came out a very nuanced full take rather than the sort of simplistic kind of take that a lot of the press mm-hmm. sort of turns into these things. But I think they were pleased with the sort of the nuance and the the sort of the, the number of different people. And we, you know, we interviewed people who were experts on statues and things, but also then people from Germany and their, their takes on these things. And you, every time you ask people about their own history and you're weird how so many documentaries um, don't do that, um, you you get the, the fullest kind of um, take um, on it. It's, 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 can be quite breathtaking sometimes. So yeah, I, I think my sort of progression has gone to that is, yeah, I've suddenly gone to making a lot of documentaries. So I've gone from corporate work to actually doing, although it's a streaming service, as far as I'm concerned, this is TV content. Yeah. That's, um, th- actually, that's very interesting. What I wanted to pick up actually your career over the eight years and obviously the time before you were freelance as well, seems to me to have fallen at a, a very interesting time for film and for everything, all media, but say film, in that people can make things themselves and get it out in ways that they couldn't previously. And then History Hit, which I'm a big fan of, and it also makes you think about We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the podcast about the Second World War. Um, those are things that people have set up because they're interested in them and they have found an audience. Now, it might not be an audience that would be big enough for, you know, a national broadcaster or whatever, but it's a big enough audience to to engage in what you're doing in your in your content. And you get more time than you would. So you've mentioned with the, the documentaries that you've done, because perhaps you haven't got the pressure of it being primetime BBC One documentary. It has to have this really broad appeal, I would assume. With that one, you can kind of go more in-depth into things than you might have chance to. And isn't that the same a little bit with films as well? You've, we've got all these streaming services and we've got ways of putting things out ourselves. So we can make and tell the stories that we want to without worrying too much about how much of a mass appeal it has, or am I just being a bit romantic with it? Um, I mean, it's. I think it's really difficult to to tell. So your your feeling is that we you can program stuff that's a bit more niche rather than broad, or how do you... yeah? So that the a, a big big traditional broadcaster has to have some element of a broader. Um, appeal with their things because they have to entertain and engage a large number of people whereas you can make something that is a niche which has a lot of people interested in it but not the numbers that a broadcast a mainstream broadcaster might be looking for i suppose i think it's very difficult i'm trying to work out now whether my stuff whether it becomes niche or whether it becomes broad because some of them i feel like a you know a, a more niche than than others but Mm. um it's yeah i mean i think there's something really fascinating i think like everybody in the industry everybody is watching netflix and how they work with things and you know they have an amazing way to sort of to test the the water um with things so they can say well maybe we'll take a risk on something like Mm. squid game Mm -hmm. um and then see if that um, sticks. I thought that was really interesting to see that, um, yeah, you, you know, when, when it came out as a forced dubbed version on mine, I was really interested to know whether that, because, you know, I was hoping more people watch it with subtitles where it felt a little bit better. But I think a lot of, it's interesting because you're trying to work out whether the stuff that on Netflix becomes, um, is that the big mainstream stuff? Or is it stuff that normally would be a bit more niche, which we now realise people are really interested um, in? So I, I kind of, I feel like I don't know, and I'm trying to get my my head around it because, you know, stuff like the BBC, which is a major broadcaster, and obviously does have a lot of stuff that is fairly fringe. Like we um, watched a documentary on BBC4, which I guess is a more kind of fringy sort of um thing on you know the history of color in art and that was fascinating like one Mm. of these things that i wouldn't have thought that would be so fascinating like that's i guess niche but from a big broadcaster but then on one of their smaller channels and then you you have stuff on you know um netflix like we recently watched um uh oh god it's got such a long title 
the woman in the house across the road from the girl in the window. Um, and I was trying to work out if that was niche because apparently it was all meant to be a spoof of these other things like the girl on the train and the woman mm-hmm. in the whatever. And then, you know, is that niche or is that massively mainstream? And it's I, I think what's fascinating about the whole Netflix thing is that you can... And I, I say Netflix because I think a lot of people are watching and, and finding out ways to imitate is like mm. they're trying to work out what people want to see and can we produce stuff that is niche but goes to to different people and it's mm. it becomes interesting because there's a lot of talk about this is the golden age of streaming it costs people a lot of money if they um you know subscribe to everything mm-hmm. but then are we catering to different tastes with different things um so it, it becomes a fascinating it becomes a fascinating sort of thing like is the stuff you're doing niche or is it um broad and we were doing documentaries um i did a documentary a while ago um with a um with a company it was co-produced with a company in haiti and it was um working with um haitians to tell the story of the haitian revolution um and that it felt very, it's like very niche, but it was like it, when you know the story, it is so important and so often um, neglected. Mm. And you're like, is this quite niche? But then lots of people really, really loved it. It became, it became very popular. And at the same time, I've not done many of those things because I think I was quite aware that those should really be produced by by Haitians themselves completely. Um, so I've tended to stick also logistical things. It's better to be there on location. I was doing lots of, you know, remote interviews and, and things like that. It's, it, it can be easier to do Britain, but at the same time, I'm more interested in the parts of history we don't, you know, know about, but then still with history here, always trying to work out whether what they want is mm. your more sort of typical, um, you know, Tudors and them couple of world wars. You know, it's it's always that sort of balance. Do you want more of the same or do you want something more niche? So my thing is only a, a vague ramp because I, I'm still trying to work out what is mainstream or, or do we all sort of come into our own little echo chambers with sort of streaming? Like, will it be something that, you know, there was an article the other day saying each household, it'll cost them two and a half grand a year with all these streaming things. I was like, well, how many, I don't think everybody's like subscribing to that many things, Mm. but you know, will we all eventually, will all the streaming services specialize a little bit more in one way, or are they all fighting to be a supermarket style um, Amazon or Netflix? And I, I think it'll be interesting to know, you know, whether we find mainstream within those different niches or, or how things will go, because I feel like a lot of speculation is that at some point something will change. There'll either be less streaming services or more specialist ones and less big supermarket-style um, everything services. So, yeah. Mm. But what? how interesting to be, like, you know, around and involved in a time when things are changing like that as well. It's kind of... It's quite exciting, isn't it, to talk about how it might mm. go and sort of see, you know, how it... And also how streaming... It's similar with music, you know, how the, mm. the format and the way that people consume it is affecting how things are made as well. And, and you know, so uh, the fact yeah. that people will, you know, for better, one of a better word, binge a box set with their stream and stuff. So suddenly things, which I don't think would have been the case a few years ago, so things now can become quite... I was watching, I won't say anything, but I was watching... Um, a documentary on Netflix the other day, which follows mm-hmm. the same theme as a couple of other recent <coughs> documentaries on Netflix. And sort of two episodes in, I realised, well, this has taken all of the less interesting bits of those documentaries and missed out all the engaging bits. And it's like, so I've watched this for an hour now and nothing's happened. <laughs> and then just as it comes to nearly the last five minutes, there's some, ah, oh, but then some incredible mystery happened that will get solved in the next episode. And you suddenly find yourself like, this has been created in order to fill that gap, to 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 scratch that itch of the streaming and the binging, but it's just not working because it's not that interesting. So it's always just interesting to me how a format... Um, affects the way that people actually make stuff i suppose yeah i mean it's yeah it's interesting it depends whether what you want to make is something that is a a, a copy 
of something else. Mm. Um, you know, I remember when I was, you know, still doing stuff in marketing and I, you know, I, you know, I quit my first job in marketing when I was 24 and was all like having these high and mighty ideas. I was a junior person, like really super junior, but always had massive opinions. And there was one film that was about like a, a very low budget sort of zombie movie, but it was much it was much smarter and more thinking and very pared back. It was kind of about this guy's relationship actually with one of the zombies and will they sort of not become friends, but it was darker than that. But um, it was very interesting. And I was trying to do some, I was in charge of doing the artwork for it. And I was doing some really, you know, really pared down, really sort of striking sort of um, artwork um, for it. And I was very pleased with it. And a lot of people really liked it. And then the sales company were like, mm, it just doesn't look, it just doesn't look mainstream enough. Mm. And they found the US artwork. And I we could use the US artwork and I knew it existed. And it all had these tanks and helicopters and stuff that basically wasn't in the film. And I boss said, why don't you use this artwork instead of the one you spent ages on? Because I think this would sell it better. And I was like, it just looks like, and I, I was quite exasperated. I was like, it just looks like a cheap ripoff of 28 Days Later. And she just said to me, that's what we want. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, there, there are times when people really drive innovation. There are times when people, they say like, you know, we want security. We want something. This is the thing that is um, trending or whatever sort of, always popular. And we, we want to be doing more of that. And, it's that weird sort of thing that, that the oddity, you know, and it can be something like Breaking Bad or Squid Game that, you know, wasn't ever a small production, but suddenly something, somebody decides to promote it a bit more and then it gets through it. But, you know, somebody took a, a risk, even if it was, you know, a slight risk, because both Breaking Bad and Squid Game are, they are, you know, still recognisable formats and mm-hmm. recognisable stories, even if some things feel different about them. But, you know, still somebody took a risk. Mm. So, yeah. Great. Okay, Martin, that's been really fascinating. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> All right. You said that you're between, between projects at the moment. So if people wanting to f- keep in touch with what you were doing, what's the best way of doing that? Where would you point them to? Um, probably on on Twitter at Mark Bowsher Film. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the best way. I'm on Instagram as well, which is just at Mark Bowsher. Um, yeah, I think Twitter's the best for sort of keeping up with sort of project news and things like that. And what was the most recent thing you've done for History Hit that people might want to have a look at? <laughs> so the, the most recent thing that um, I have done um, was in just finishing off work on a documentary. Um, about uh, Britain's secret nuclear bunkers, um, which I think they're queen to get out because it's quite topical. It wasn't one on the th- we were filming on the 31st of January. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, that's the one I've been working on. Uh, the first Britons um, also I would recommend looking up. And I've not really mentioned it, but I have a book called The Boy Who Stole Time. Um, and that I'm in the middle of, I've got the rights back and I'm at the moment taking it to agents for that and the the sequel to, to push that. But if you, you can still get copies. There are still plenty of secondhand copies or I do signed copies. So if you want oh, a nice escapist adventure about a boy traveling to um, magical realms to find the essence of time itself, um, to save his mother's life that's a, it's a, a lot of people like the sort of heart racing adventure of it but it's yeah the, the characters people love as well for that and it's it's a weird thing that I've realized that this thing of having time because you get distracted and just because dyspraxia is about um you know that things will literally take you longer to do because of the distraction because of the fine motor coordination for all of those things a lot of things take longer to do and longer to master. So I found that time and, and the quest for more time is something we all feel like everything with exas- with um, with dyspraxia. Every little thing that people find mentally or, or 
you know, fine motor coordination and mm. um, everything you find difficult is exacerbated just that little bit by dyspraxia. So time and the quest for time is kind of tied to that and everything in my life. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Mark. That's been great. Cool. Thank you very much, Rob. Cheers. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Join us next time on the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast. Until then, please subscribe, rate and review and have a look at robertlanemusic.co.uk to see the other projects I'm working on. Thank you. Goodbye.